what's the charge against Christianity today? Why do people oppose it? What have they got against it? Therefore, why are Christians sidelined? Why are they ignored? Why are they persecuted for what they believe? I wonder how you would answer that question today in your world, in our culture, with the friends, neighbours, colleagues that you do life with. What's their disagreement with the claims of Christianity? What's their charge against it? Or perhaps even for yourself, perhaps. What's your disagreement with it? What holds you back from accepting the truth claims of Christianity? And there could be many, many reasons. I found this book very helpful. The titles of the chapters of What Kind of God is a helpful place to start. When we think about the objections the charges that people have against Christianity. What kind of God doesn't make himself clearer? He seems distant, uninterested, silent, out of date and therefore out of touch with the issues of the day, says one chapter. Another chapter, what kind of God doesn't prevent suffering, rape, child abuse and disease? What kind of God doesn't care about his creation, global warming, carbon footprints, climate change? What kind of God would limit my sexuality. He must be repressive, restrictive, too restraining. You see, there are so many pushbacks, so many charges against Christianity. There can be so many different issues that we face and our friends face too. By and large, we would say that Christianity is it's probably held at arm's length by the majority. It's just kept out of reach. And yet we come to God's word today. Acts 6 and Acts 7. Here's the account of Stephen. And it's not at arm's length. No, it's far closer to home. We see the charge against him in his Christianity. We see Stephen's defence of the God of the Bible. We see the offence that it causes. And Stephen holding to the truth, even in the face of death. You see, we'll see this afternoon that the charge against Christianity, the result of it, it goes way beyond passive tolerance. It goes to bitter hatred and death. Three points today. First of all, the charge against Christianity. We know that persecution of the apostles has already started. Turn your page back one page if you have a... No, you won't have to. 5 verse 40 says, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Persecution of Christians and therefore Christianity has started. And we're introduced to Stephen. Look, 6 verse 5 This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 6 verse 8, a man full of God's grace and power. Note for a moment here, this is not of his own making. This isn't uh, Stephen's super saviour, Stephen's super saint. He has the spirit of God within him. It's grace given. Something that he hasn't earned or merited, but yet 
Luke wants us to pay attention to this fact. Look, he's brought in as a deacon to deal with a social situation. It's worth a little lay-by stop here before we go on with the main part of the story. Look, 6 verse 7 is crucial to the book of Acts. The word of the Lord spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the apostles have been commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses. From Peter in Acts 2, throughout Acts, we see the movement of God. We see the movement of God's word and God's spirit. Look out for that as we journey through Acts. See, it's the apostles' job to bring scripture to bear on the hearers and bring witness to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that scripture. That is being a witness, a faithful witness. And it's the spirit within them takes the word and transforms the heart. And the apostles must continue to make that priority. The Lord Jesus has commissioned them to do just that. And yet, it's in the light of a very important social issue. We see the distribution of bread to widows of different cultural groups. There seems to be inequality. And therefore, Stephen and six others are given the task to oversee these affairs important as they are and they are important we're not going to take more time looking at them they're important social issues it's an issue within the church yet they must not take priority so we'll find good and godly men to deal with this situation johnny just prayed one of our key values as a church town church We prioritise God's word. It's one of our values. The elders make it their job, and Helen, make it a priority to study and teach God's word. It's always been the danger of church and history. The risk is you fall always to one side. You fall on just being a Bible-centred church And don't care for those around you. Or or you care for those around you and yet you lose touch with what God's word is saying. It seems to have divided the church throughout history. And you see here's the brilliant model of how to continue to prioritise God's word. And yet care for the community in which God's word is going out into. It's the best example of course it is. Right at the beginning of Acts. But let's pull out of the lay-by and continue with what's going on in Acts and what's going on with the story of Stephen. He's doing amazing things by the power of the Spirit. Do you see that in verse 8? And opposition arose. He's creating a stir. Incredible in verse 10. Look, people can't stand up against him. The wisdom the Spirit gave him, not wise old Stephen, but the wisdom that the Spirit gave him was unchallengeable. He couldn't be challenged. They couldn't challenge him. And false witnesses are therefore brought to stir up the crowd. They can't get him on truth, on what he's saying, on how wise he is. And so false witnesses are brought in. And here 
we go with the false witnesses. This fellow, verse 13, never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. It's blasphemous, the people shout out, what Stephen is teaching. You see, there's nothing more sacred for a Jew than the temple of God and the law of Moses. Nothing more sacred. The temple was the dwelling place of God, the sanctuary of his presence. And the law was Holy Scripture, the revelation of God's mind and will. So to speak against God's home and to speak against God's voice was to blaspheme. In what way was Stephen doing this? And here we see the close link to Jesus. Verse 14. I've read it already. Stephen's just repeating what they've already heard Jesus tell them. Jesus has been accused. And it's safe to say that Stephen was faithful. Being faithful to what Jesus had taught to. Mark 14 verse 48. This is what the people said of Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. In John 20 verse 20, they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this, this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. Jesus in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to abolish, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so all Stephen is doing is repeating the teaching of Jesus. The law and the temple, they are sacred in the Jews' mind. And Jesus has said, I've come to fulfill both. Listen to what John Stott says on this. What Jesus taught then was that the temple and the law would be superseded. Meaning, not that they had never been divine gifts in the first place but that they would find their God-intended fulfilment in him, the Messiah. Jesus was and is himself the replacement of the temple and the fulfilment of the law. See, Jesus wasn't denigrating their existence or role. He was magnifying the importance of both. By claiming that they pointed towards the Son of God who embodied them both. It's careful we get this right. We've got to be really careful that we get this right. You see the law? I'm reminded by some of the series that we've done at Town Church. Series that I enjoyed certainly being a part of and listening to and going back over. You see the law? What was the law's purpose? To show us God's goodness... And to show us our failure. What was the Lord's, Lord's place? Well, that, therefore for us in the life of the believer, it's to help us to be obedient now, now that we've got transformed lives. The purpose and the place of the law. What about the temple? It's place. Jesus is the indwelling, the indwelling of the nature of God. And now, the indwelling nature of God dwells in, dwells in the believers. We are the temple that the Spirit lives within. 
Its purpose is your body, the place where the Holy Spirit resides. It's Christ in you. And you see, Jesus first embodied the law and the temple. So let's come back through and think, right, what today? What's the charge against Christianity today? If it's so far-fetched to think about the law and the temple, because no one's really making a charge against us that we're blaspheming against Moses, the law of the temple of God. They might be to you specifically, perhaps online, perhaps in the workplace, if you get involved in a very detailed conversation. But, but, but I think here's the point, the main driving point. Doesn't it always come down to the identity, to the claims, to the person and to the work of Jesus? Isn't that what it all boils down to? Any kind of conversation? It's what it should boil down to, any kind of conversation that I'm in, with a charge against Christianity. I was mortified. About a year ago, a friend who'd been along to one or two town church men's events, he said, Langs, what I love about you and your church is, is the morals. I love what you're trying to do and with the children's work especially. And I love the fact that you're not weird about Jesus. I love the fact that you don't go on about as a church how much you love Jesus. I was mortified. <laughs> the opposite's true. Now, we'd only been to a couple of things, so that was okay. But the opposite's true. It's all about Jesus. Look, your charge or your way in or or the opposition that you've got about Christianity, it all will boil down to a view of Jesus. It will. So look in verse 7. When the high priest asks Stephen in verse 1, are these charges true? He begins his defence, 53 verses. And here's the second point, the defence for Christianity. Rambling, dull, irrelevant and incoherent are words which some commentators describe the next 53 verses. Now I'm going to charge you to read it tonight and see what you think. Here we have the longest defence of Christianity in the New Testament. Stephen. But I think as you read it, and we'll pick out a few highlights now, you'll see that Stephen is far from being defensive and dull and rambling. Unlike the current England football team, perhaps you'd say. Stephen's on the ball. Look, look what he does. He gets right on the front foot. He presses it to the opposition. Look, he gives them a history lesson. (laughs) They know their history. Of course they do. They're hardened, fast Jews. But what Stephen does brilliantly is that he lets history accuse them of their own charges that they bring to Stephen. It's such a clever piece. Look, from 2 to verse 17, he pulls out the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. 17 to 43, pulls out the period of Moses, the law and wilderness wandering. 44 to 50, the place of the ark, the tabernacle 
of God, the temple, Joshua, David, Solomon. Far from rambling, you see what Stephen's doing. The charge against Stephen was blasphemy against Moses and the law and the temple. And here's the attack from Stephen back to them as he uses history to accuse his accusers. You think I'm blaspheming against Moses and the law and the temple and God? And he starts so friendly. Brothers and fathers. See that in verse 2? But listen to me. Just listen to me. Pay attention to me. Before I get to Moses and the accusations, you're flying at me, says Abraham. Uh, Sorry, says Stephen. Do you remember Abraham? Do you remember the promises of God in the face of adversity to him? And Joseph, do you remember him? Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. You see, it was because of God's people, the the brothers of Joseph, that put Joseph in such a sticky situation. And look at Moses. Let's get back to Moses then, or let's get to Moses. You just remember the time he received the law, says Stephen, back to them. But let me remind you of how he was treated. He was the one who brought peace and reconciliation, and yet he was rejected by his own people. He was the one that brought God's word and yet the people of God rejected him and God's word in favour of a golden calf. Verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. You see what's happening? And as you read chapter 7, we've not got time to read it, every word, but read it tonight as you see what's happening. He's using history and saying, building the picture of those who were on the inside who have consistently stood against God, stood up against God, and been against God. And all he's trying to do is say, look, history, 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 history to you. See how you're set up against God? You who think you're on the inside? As for the ark and the tabernacle, the temple, man's attempts to contain and control God, Stephen says. Stephen goes on to say, look, God cannot be contained in a place He's not static. He's not localized. He's the one that holds the word of life. And the Jew thinks the temple is the place where God is. And so Stephen switches it all around. And he's, and he's saying, therefore, if God is everywhere, all empowering and came in the form of his son. Who are the blasphemers now by saying that he only resides in one place? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. By the way, this isn't a sermon about modelling our evangelism, our apologetic tactics on Stephen. It's not. Look, there could be some really good hints in here, but it's not. Look how he goes on. Was there ever, verse 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You see, the issue is not history. 
The charge against Christianity, your friends might say it's around morality, obedience to God, and I can't follow that. It's not about religion, a place or procedure that I can't go to. Carry on the argument as the Jews had here against Stephen and the false witnesses that they brought in. Get into any discussion with your friends about Christianity. It's, it's not about science versus creation. Of course it is at first. It's not about sexual ethics. It's not about historical credibility. There are always gateways into the main auditorium. That's Jesus and how you respond to him. It's about the plausibility of Jesus. The argument centers around him. The law points to him. Shows that we can't obediently live by it. The Lord demonstrates our need of a saviour. The temple points to him. It's where the presence of God dwells to understand the identity of Jesus as God. Trusting in him brings us to God. To dwell with him in his house forever. That's what's at stake. And it's always at stake. Jesus. Some people know Jesus to be the main hurdle and hide behind other reasons. Others aren't sure. Others really don't think it is and others do not know. And our job is to help them see Jesus. To answer our friends' questions if we were to talk about evangelism and apologetics. To answer our friends' questions in such a way that makes them engage with Jesus. And our friends who object, they'll usually walk away. You might lose a friend or two and that's painful. It can be painful. But here and in so many other places... It leads to hatred and persecution. Third point, quickly, look at the truth of Christianity. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. He's gone after them. Stephen's gone after them. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, oh, Stephen's going to do it now. Look, he said, I see heaven open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, Stephen sees Jesus for who he is. Verse 57, at this they covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Let me continue the story from this book. Another stone found its mark. Sorry, step back. A rock sailed past Stephen's head. He stopped speaking long enough to duck it. Dazed for a moment, then stood to continue. The second rock caught him near his temple and he fell to his knees. And another hit his shoulder. Then there were too many to count. No more Jesus talk. Let this be a lesson to all who would proclaim this Jesus. And another stone found its mark. Then another. He couldn't open his eyes for the sting of the blood. His clothes were torn by the blows and blood dripped freely from the tatters. 
And he began to pray. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he scanned the crowd until the eyes locked with those of the young man who held a bundle of coats. And Lord, he continued, do not hold this sin against them. Look, even in the face of death, the truth of Jesus compels him to act confidently, lovingly. The king of heaven awaits him. For years, Pastor Kim and 27 of his flock of Korean saints had lived in hand-dug tunnels beneath the earth. Then as the communists were building a road, they discovered the Christians living underground. The officials brought them out before a crowd of 30,000 in the village of Gok San for a public trial and execution. They were told, deny Christ or you will die. But they refused. At this point, the head of the communist army ordered four children from the group seized and had them prepared for hanging with ropes tied around their small necks. The officer again commanded the parents to deny Christ. Not one of the believers would deny their faith. They told the children, we will soon see you in heaven. The children died quietly. And then the officer called for a steamroller to be brought in. He forced the Christians to lie on the ground in its path. And as its engine revved, they were given one last chance to recant their faith in Christ. And again, they refused. And as the steamroller began to inch forward, the Christians began to sing a song that they had often sung together. And as their bones and bodies were crushed under the pressure of massive rollers, their lips uttered the words, More love to thee. Oh Christ, more love to thee. Stephen stoned to death. And even in that moment, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. Remind you of someone else? (laughs) And is that it? Is that the hope that awaits? You might be thinking, is that life as a Christian? You see, remember Acts, the dynamic movement of God and his word, moving in history to build his church. Look at 8 verse 1 on that day. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered. Where? Throughout Judea and Samaria. And Bracts 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. To the ends of the earth. A short-lived religion. (laughs) The king is dead. His story will fade into a fable of history. No, no, it's how God moves to build his church. And look right at the beginning of 8 verse 1. Look who's there. Saul. Who became Paul. The great apostle. Who spoke boldly of Christ. And so the apostles were scattered and the gospel goes forward. And the, the gospel comes to Bista. And we form a small church called Town Church. And here we see the way of the cross 
before glory. Because it awaits. And who knows what persecution might look like. Oh Lord, that we would be bold for the Lord Jesus. Father, that we would stand strong for you. In the canteen, Tuesday, we get asked about faith or quizzed or ridiculed. That we would remember Jesus. And we would hold to wonderful truth, truth that's changed and transformed us. Father, please. To that end, would your church grow? And would it glorify you? In Jesus' name, amen.